Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. One of the many quotes from Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot, referring to an image sent back to Earth of the Earth from four billion miles away as the Voyager 1 spacecraft exited the solar system in 1990. Of all the places and circumstances in which one or a group of ones could become marooned, we often forget that the human race is itself in a precarious spot on our pale blue dot except for the rare occasions where we manage to escape via rocket ship to explore a little, and a space mission fails to go exactly as planned. Welcome to Marooned, Stories of the Catastrophically Lost. I'm Jack Luna. This is Aaron Habel. The Apollo program's mission goals were establishing the technology to meet other national interests in space, achieving preeminence in space for the United States, carrying out a program of scientific exploration of the moon, developing human capability to work in the lunar environment. Apollo 1, the first manned mission of the Apollo program, created in the hopes of one day touching an American foot to the moon, didn't crash, didn't even make it off the ground. But in a horrifying circumstance, it did burn. Three astronauts were killed on January 27, 1967, when during launch rehearsal, an electrical fire broke out in their capsule, a high-oxygen environment, and within a matter of seconds, Astronauts Virgil Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee were lost. Poisonous fumes were what directly killed them, not the 1,400-degree or so fire that had started. Still, shouts were heard and hands could be seen grasping at the hatch in the 10 seconds it took for it to be over. And Jack, it was almost all over for the Apollo program as a result. But as we all know, that wasn't the case, as eventually the Apollo 11 mission would result in a manned moon landing on July 20th, 1969. The sacrifice of those in the inaugural mission and all that was learned from that travesty culminating in one small step for man. And another note here, Jack, mm -hmm. this wasn't technically the first one, but because of the horrifying result, right. they wanted to honor these astronauts. As we all know, they took incredible risks to get us to space. And this is one of those sacrifices that unfortunately had to happen. Less than a year after that momentous event in human history and following another success mission to the moon in Apollo 12, the Americans were ready to do it a third time with Apollo 13. Only a fraction of those who had followed the Apollo 11 mission would tune in for the launch. For some reason, people got complacent, bored yeah. with our Apollo program. <laughs> they went to the moon once, and then it was like, ah, they did that before. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I would be watching every single time if I were around. Oh, my God. Me too. Me too. I mean, they went with Apollo 12 too, right? They went Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and this was the third time, right? Yes. And the other thing is, is there were astronauts who were raring to go. They couldn't wait mm -hmm. to get out there. 
And when it was their turn, they thought, I'm going to be one more human touching down on the surface of the moon. What an accomplishment. Going to the moon suddenly seemed like a piece of cake. That illusion would soon be shattered. Yeah, Aaron, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know there were multiple moon landings. I get all of my moon landing information from conspiracy theorists. <laughs> it seems that they leave a lot of information out, that a lot of their arguments are a bit disingenuous. Um, you run into a lot of that? Oh, absolutely. Everybody does. Um, you know, it's funny. Shout out to my mother, but she's one of those people that is very level-headed. I think my interest in science really comes from her. And yet she told me when pressed that the reason why she holds out that the moon landing may have been faked is because she just needs something like that. Sure. You know, everyone needs a conspiracy in their pocket, I suppose, a way of being a rebel. So uh, I can tell her all day all the facts about the moon and how I know we've gone there. But, you know, like other people, conspiracies, they can be pretty exciting. For sure. It's fun. Uh, Though I try to stay out of them these days. I tell people once they start speaking like that, I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not a scientist, you know. I'm I'm not that intelligent. I'm not that learned on the subject. So I think I'm just going to leave it to the to the pros. I do have a fun quote from Commander Pete Conrad of the Apollo 12 mission. Uh, just to throw in here, Aaron, I was excited about this to share with you. He was apparently quite short and said this when he stepped onto the moon. Quote, whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. End quote. And <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. The reason I bring it up is the Apollo missions were seemingly becoming a little relaxed with astronauts up there uh, messing around, kind of like this, having fun, bouncing around, all that, playing practical jokes on each other. Of course, the cheerful banter and wholesome fun was just a way of letting off a little steam. Space exploration is pressure filled, and each astronaut, as well as those supporting on the ground, were well aware the disaster unlike the moon, was truly only one small step away. Apollo 13, launch date April 11th, 1970, in Cape Canaveral, Florida. This was to be the third Apollo mission to put astronauts on the moon. They would head to the Fra Moro Highlands and explore the Imbrium Basin. The Fra Moro Highlands are named for the 80-kilometer crater located in the area of the same name on the moon. Fra Amaro was a 15th century monk and mapmaker. Apollo 13's mission introduced a new challenge. On the previous two missions, the crew were sent on a trajectory that would make returning to Earth relatively simple. Because of the time of day that they would arrive, the astronauts wouldn't be able to make out the topography of the surface. This would require a change in trajectory in order to approach safely, thereby changing course and spoiling their easy return to Earth in the event of an engine issue. Fred Hayes was to be the lunar module pilot. He would fly the lunar module, Aquarius, from the moon's orbit to the moon's surface. The 36-year-old had been a pilot in the Navy, Air Force, and the Marines. He and his wife Mary had three children, with another on the way. Ken Mattingly was to be the command module pilot. The command module's name was Odyssey. At 34, he was the youngest crew member. He was engaged to a woman named Elizabeth Daly. 42-year-old Jim Lovell was the commander of Apollo 13. He had been a captain in the U.S. Navy and used the Navy's motto as inspiration for Apollo 13's motto, Ex Tridens Scientia. That means from the sea, knowledge. Then became 
ex luna scientia, from the moon knowledge. He had married Marilyn Gerlach in 1952, and they had four children together. This was to be a scientific mission, and yet there were some interesting numbers tied to it. I know you're a numbers guy, Jack. <laughs> yeah. Launch was at 1.13 Central Time, which is 13.13 Military Time. The flight was to begin on 4.11.70. Add 4.1170, and you end up with 13. This number showed up again when they understood that the craft would pass through the moon's gravitational field on April 13th. Now, when we look at those numbers, we keep saying 13, and a superstitious person would probably say, can I grab the next flight? <laughs> yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of 13s. <laughs> Some people might say, how many lefts do you have to make to turn right? You know. <laughs> yeah. In this case, I don't think you gain any benefit from adding 13s together. And some hotels you go to don't even have a 13th floor. Yeah, oh, yeah, man. On most of them. I've never even seen a 13th floor, actually. <laughs> yeah, it might be most of them. These numbers, they're just interesting. Lovell didn't have a problem with them. He just focused on the science and thought nothing of these figures. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking my language, Aaron. I'm always adding stuff up to 13. As I mentioned earlier, I got a, a not a very big brain. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just, I'm a little childish with such things. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are into numerology, and, and, and I am too, along with demonology and things that are fun. I believe in ghosts. I don't care who knows it. I don't believe they went to the moon. And uh, I'm just joking. I actually do believe they went to the moon after the research for this episode. But I'm always adding stuff up to 13 as a way to make things more spooky in my life. For instance, Aaron, did you know that the number of letters in Aaron Jack Luna adds up to 13? As does Jack Luna Hable. Pretty freaky, right? Definitely freaky. The mission had a crew of three, but there was a backup crew should anyone fall ill. Charles Duke was the backup pilot, and a week before launch, he caught rubella. As a backup crew member, you might think that was not an issue, but he spent time around the rest of the main and backup crew members. That seems kind of odd to me, but that's the way they were doing it. Mm -hmm. Rubella isn't necessarily a concern if the person exposed has had a prior exposure. In this case, all exposed crew members had prior exposure, except for Ken Mattingly, who was part of the Apollo 13 astronaut team with Hayes and Lovell. Lovell knew that Mattingly would likely get removed and replaced, but fought for him to stay on the team. After all, he had learned that by launch time, he should be back to normal. The flight surgeon made the call to remove Mattingly from the planned mission, and backup astronaut Jack Swigert would move up from the backup team to fill Mattingly's role. 38-year-old Swigert was well-liked and a damn good pilot, according to those who knew him. He had been a pilot in the U.S. Air Force and the Air National Guard. As an astronaut, he stood out from the rest as he was a bachelor with what they called an active social life. This wouldn't be that special these days, but back then it was a topic of discussion. Actually, I'd argue it could be a topic of discussion these days, though. Aaron, you never hear about astronauts, do you? You'd think that they'd be like superstars. I think it's because there were the glory days back right. in the 60s and 70s, and now they're just, I don't know, like baristas or something. <laughs> and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, astronauts no. continue to be amazing pioneers, but you know, hopefully one day we'll get back to that. Yes, I think it might be coming soon, too. So with just days before launch, this new team of Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert performed drills to be sure that they would work well together. 
Lovell felt good about the team, and Swigert was certified. Unlucky number 13 was irrelevant. The team was well-trained, and the mission well-planned. The astronauts would leave the Earth on a Saturn V rocket. This stood 363 feet tall. Each one of its five F-1 engines produced 1.5 million pounds of thrust to send the rocket up. First stage runs for two and a half minutes at 5,000 miles per hour, rising over 40 miles high in a time of two minutes and 47 seconds. At that point, the used part of the rocket separates to get rid of the dead weight. Stage two J2 engines kick in to push the rocket for nine minutes and nine seconds before expending its fuel and separating. Stage three features a single engine, which fires for up to 90 seconds and gets the rocket into Earth orbit, then shuts down. Now, this Stage 3 rocket engine kicks back on when it's time to head to the moon's orbit. For the crew of Apollo 13, this happened three hours after they launched from the Earth. The rocket sped towards the moon at 24,500 miles per hour. So basically, they get up into orbit of Earth, and then once they kind of line up where they need to head out to the moon, then they race to the moon. Yes. Because everything's spinning, of course. So... It can take a little while. They're up in the orbit for a bit, and then they can take off and head to the moon, get their mission going. Yeah, I see it as like, you know, one of those revolving doors uh, when you go into a hotel that doesn't have the floor 13, and you got to wait for your moment to get in, to jump out. That's kind of what they're doing. They're kind of waiting in their queue, right? Was that? They have to be efficient with their fuel. That's what this is about. So once they get lined up, then they can take off again. And, and I guess that third stage, that gets used twice because the other stages were once and then they're done. It's scary to me how often they just shut the fuel off and go floating, you know, because they're trying to save fuel. Like you said, they're just kind of drifting around all the time. I mean, space is just terrifying to me. So, and they have to, they have to have everything working. So if, if the engine doesn't start back up, that's a problem. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get out and hook cables up to another, uh, a flight that's up there with you. The link to Earth for the Apollo crew was called CAPCOM. CAPCOM is short for Capsule Communication and is an astronaut who communicates with the three astronauts in space. CAPCOM for this mission was Joe Kerwin, who liked to keep things interesting. He updated the crew on the latest baseball scores, what President Nixon was up to, and even reminded the other astronauts that the tax filing deadline was nearly upon them. Jack Swigert asked if Kerwin knew how to get that extended as he was currently away from the Earth. Kerwin laughed, as did others nearby. Swigert, though, was feeling a little bit panicked. He, he was kind of serious, Aaron, wasn't he? Yeah, he was serious because he was seriously worried about what would happen to him if he didn't make the <laughs> deadline. And of course, he's thinking, wait, I'm, I'm away. How am I supposed to do this now? <laughs> well, Swigert was the one that got brought in last, right? He got substituted in. Yes. So you can imagine that was kind of a whirlwind. Yeah, he's like, all right, I did forget something. I knew I forgot something. (laughs) Tax season. (laughs) Yeah. 55 hours into their trip to the moon, the astronauts started a live broadcast to Earth. Not that many were watching. It seems strange, but after Apollo 11 was a success, many Americans lost interest in the Apollo program. Networks weren't going to interrupt scheduled programming to show the astronauts, so only the commander's wife, Marilyn Lovell, her daughters, Barbara and Susan, and wife of lunar module pilot Hayes, Mary Hayes, were watching in the VIP gallery, aside from some controllers. And Aaron, you've got to imagine that during Apollo 11's 
uh, mission, that control room would have been packed as well as the eyeballs on this. But there was millions of people watching this. Oh yeah, that was that was a stunning moment in history when they were headed to the moon on Apollo 11 and then by Apollo 13 people are like, "Hey, I want to watch my regularly scheduled program. Don't interrupt <laughs> it with this moon nonsense." And you got a, just a couple of wives, a couple of kids in the command center here and just, you know, chewing gum, popping bubbles. And it's just business as usual. This is a regular thing suddenly to go to the moon. Lovell and Hayes's family members wanted to see them though because they were missed. I mean, they're up there for a while and they also wanted assurances that all was well up there. The 32-minute live broadcast, it went well. It ended with Commander Lovell saying, this is the crew of Apollo 13 wishing everybody there a nice evening, and we're just about ready to close out our inspection of Aquarius and get back for a pleasant evening in Odyssey. Good night. Now that the broadcast was over, the astronauts would need to run tests. I mean, this isn't just a pleasure cruise. There's a lot to be done. One test was to confirm that the service module's main antenna was transmitting on the correct frequency and in the correct position. Another critical test was to stir the cryotanks. This request was sent by Seymour Liebergott, the ECOM, Electrical, Environmental, and Consumables Manager on this mission. There were two oxygen tanks and two hydrogen tanks, which maintained their gases in cryogenic states. When they channeled them out, the two were combined in three fuel cells, which were equipped with catalyzing electrodes. This created heat, electricity, and oxygen. If anything went wrong with the cryotanks, the mission and its crew could face a dire situation. It wasn't long before a warning light came on, which was seen by Liebergott immediately. One of the hydrogen tanks was giving a low-pressure reading. Stirring the tanks would most likely fix the issue. At this point, they were 205,000 miles from Earth. Before the stir, Houston had them run a maneuver and then check the C4 thrusters. They were then asked to stir the tanks, which Swigert did with the flick of a switch. Hopefully, stirring the tanks would cause the yellow warning light to turn off. Just 16 seconds later, a bang-wump shudder shook the ship. This was highly unusual. Commander Jim Lovell had three prior Apollo flights, and he had never felt or heard something like that before. The only thing that was even slightly reminiscent of it was when Fred Hayes would screw around sometimes to break up the monotony and turn the repress valve, which stabilized pressure between the command module Odyssey and the lunar module Aquarius. When he pulled this prank, there would be a hissing sound and a thump that rocked both ships. But that wasn't it. Uh, Lovell did immediately question Hayes about it, who could see that his commander was visibly angry and concerned. Hayes denied turning the valve. Commander Lovell could see Hayes wasn't smirking, but rather visibly frightened. The two looked over at Swigert, who was also not comfortable. Something had happened, and it wasn't a prank. A warning light came on, then a warning sound blared. Swigert checked the instrument panel and recognized the warning light was indicating that Bus B lost all power. This was a bad sign as Bus B provided power to the command module. Swigert contacted Houston. Hey, we've got a problem here. This is Houston. Say again, please, replied Lausma, the Capcom. Lovell responded with, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main bus B undervolt. Liebergott began to try and diagnose what had happened by scanning his console. Two other ECOM engineers began to relay bad news. The second oxygen tank was showing as empty. Half of the oxygen for the astronauts in the command module was now gone. Fuel cells one and two were gone. They had started with three. 
Houston was hoping that nothing was truly wrong. Maybe some sensors failed, but they wouldn't rely on hope. Still, Hayes reported that bus two was back. Houston did not see this, but maybe something had struck the craft and the sensors were temporarily offline. Hayes continued to monitor the data, and it wasn't long before bus B readings dropped again and bus A started dropping. Oxygen tank two read as empty. Maybe something had struck the command module. Commander Lovell and Swigert moved to close the hatch between the lunar module and the command module. If the lunar module was hit, it might depressurize. Closing the hatch would prevent the loss of pressure in the command module. But the hatch wouldn't close. Lovell made the call to tie the hatch out of the way. He reasoned that depressurization would have happened already if caused by something hitting the craft. Houston continued to see discrepancies between their numbers and those reported by Apollo 13. Another clue was discovered when they found that the command module had performed a hardware reset. The computer indicated that this was an internal issue, not an external one. The main antenna had also stopped transmitting. This job had immediately transferred to the four small omnidirectional antennas on the service module. For those in Houston trying to figure out the best course of action, this was a challenge. Could the Apollo 13 craft really experience so many problems and changes all at once? Should they believe the bad or the good numbers? Hayes had again reported seeing good numbers for the bus and the oxygen tanks, but those numbers were in stark contrast to those seen in Houston. While they made decisions on Earth, Commander Lovell told his crew that the moon landing was probably off. With all of the issues happening, Houston was likely to call off the mission to be on the safe side. They weren't feeling good about the discrepancies with the data, and it wasn't just the numbers, it was also the ship they were in. Thrusters were firing again and again in order to stabilize the command and lunar modules. Since there was a reset, Commander Lovell decided he had better try to handle the swaying and lurching manually. If he couldn't get the ship's movements under control, the craft could experience extreme temperatures on either side of it, which could further jeopardize the astronauts. Instinctively, after getting into his seat, Commander Lovell looked out his side window. A thin white gassy cloud surrounded the ship. A gas was being vented from the ship and into space. He reported this to Houston. Gene Kranz, the lead flight director for this mission, asked the room in Houston if anyone could come up with what was leaking from the spacecraft. It was at this moment that it began to hit everyone in the control room. This mission was now about survival. Kranz asked everyone to remain calm. They needed to proceed carefully and not make matters worse. Lovell checked the readings for the oxygen tanks. Tank 2 was zero. Tank 1 was leaking. The gauge showed a slow drop. How much time did they have left? How much did Houston know about their situation? Lovell guessed that they might have two hours of oxygen left before the last bit of oxygen was emptied. Lovell, as calmly as possible, checked in with Capcom about the oxygen tanks. Jack Lausma indicated they could see what was happening with their readings. Tank 2 was gone. Tank 1 was dropping. Commander Jim Lovell realized that Odyssey, the command module, was going to be useless and soon. If he and his crew were to make it home, they would need to use Aquarius, the lunar module, as it seemed to be intact and operable. The lunar module was built with two passengers in mind. It also provided 45 hours of oxygen for those two passengers. Fitting three in Aquarius would be tight and lower the hours of oxygen it could provide. Jim Lovell informed Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot, about how they would need Aquarius to get back home. Back on Earth, Marilyn Lovell got a call. It was Jerry Hammock. 
He was head of the NASA recovery team that retrieved astronauts and their craft after they returned from space and landed in the ocean. Hammett called to tell her that NASA was working with other nations and assured her that the Apollo 13 crew would be brought home safely and that they had options. Despite his assurances, the news of what was happening spread like a wildfire, and it wasn't long before Marilyn, Mary Hayes, and everyone else learned just how catastrophic the situation truly was. The crew of Apollo 13 was in trouble. They were away from Earth, in space, and no space tow was headed their way to pick them up. Being in space is obviously a big risk, especially in 1970, and the astronauts knew this. But despite being aware of it, they still had lives they weren't ready to let go of just yet. They were determined to get back home. Back in Houston, there wasn't a lot of thought given to how to salvage something from this mission. If the crew had an issue that caused the landing to be canceled, they might have just authorized a lunar orbit, something. But given the dangerous situation their task had become, how could they support the return of these men? The worst thing they could do was overcorrect or put them further in danger by making a bad call. They needed to approach the situation carefully and put their best people forward. Already, there were people being recalled to Houston to help. All hands needed to be ready to assist. Commander Lovell was still trying to get the ship under control. Manual control wasn't doing him much good as the ship fought him. Odyssey had a flight director attitude indicator called the 8-ball that displayed information from the Inertial Measurement Unit, or IMU, which is used to help the pilot understand their attitude in relation to any point in space. Inside of the IMU are three gimbals, and the purpose of it was to stabilize the platform. The three axes it dealt with are pitch, yaw, and roll. Any change in attitude was recognized by the IMU and displayed on the 8-ball. But if Commander Lovell couldn't bring the module under control, it could become gimbal locked. The outer gimbal would move parallel to the inner gimbal, and then all three gimbals would be lined up on a single plane. If it did, Commander Lovell would lose his ability to know his ship's position, which is terrifying. As the ship got closer to gimbal lock due to the pitch and yaw of the craft, the system would warn him. Commander Lovell was aware, but given how much movement was happening, this was taking a lot of effort to avoid gimbal lock. Yeah, and this was something that would stress everyone out because (laughs) it would never stop. You know, there was a lot of talk, actually, how some of the astronauts wanted there to be four gimbals inside, which would prevent the lock from ever happening. But it would also increase the size of the IMU and increase the cost. So it wasn't something that they were ready to do. So when you said um, that we're talking about how scary this is, I mean, there's a lot of dry information here, obviously, for the audience, but I mean, it's necessary to to get it all out. Um, but we need to recall that these guys are in outer space here, the darkness. And Aaron, do you understand, like, uh, is it your understanding that if gimbal lock happens, do they just go spinning off into space? It's the knowledge of where you're at in space. So right. if you get gimbal locked, then you can't make adjustments for your benefit. You have no just idea have where you no are. no idea. It would be complete guesswork. Oh, God. From Earth, Seymour Liebergott could see that Odyssey was playing a losing game. The ship needed power and oxygen, but oxygen in Tank 2 was gone. Oxygen Tank 1 had lost half of its pressure, leaving it with over 400 pounds of pressure per square inch. The data showed that for every minute that passed, the tank would lose more than one pound of pressure. Fuel cells 1 and 3 seemed to be lost while fuel cell 2 was on its last leg. Without a fuel cell to catalyze oxygen and hydrogen, 
The crew would lose their oxygen reserves, and the ship's remaining bus would lose power, and with that, would be done for. Lieber got consulted with Gene Kranz. Kranz would have to make the call on what to do next. Liebergott was certain that in order to increase the crew's chances of survival, that they needed to utilize the ship's re-entry batteries. They held two hours worth of power. If they made use of them, they could provide power to both bus A and B so the ship wouldn't shut down. If they did this, then they would also need to reduce the electrical draw by 20%. The crew already had a power checklist, and in it were pink pages, 1 through 5, which would be used to show which systems to shut down. Their target was to reduce the electrical load on the ship by 10 amps. Kranz gave the go-ahead, and Odyssey was given the instructions. Commander Lovell instructed Swagger to retrieve the checklist, which was attached to the wall in the equipment bay, with Velcro. Capcom made sure that the crew knew what it was that they had to do. Houston continued to send instructions to the crew to try and improve their odds, But after the buses were given battery power and Swigert reduced the power draw by shutting down non-critical systems, Liebergott discovered that Odyssey only had about an hour and 54 minutes left before it failed. His next plan was to try and stop the oxygen leak. But the plan involved shutting down the reactant valve on fuel cell 3, and if that didn't do the trick, the one on fuel cell 1. Kranz quickly signed on to the idea, and the crew was notified. When Hayes got the new orders, he was surprised. This meant that fuel cell 3 would be officially gone. After he slammed the valve shut, Liebergott and other ECOM engineers watched the numbers. The oxygen leak continued. Liebergott suggested Kranz order Hayes to shut the valve down for fuel cell 1. Kranz gave the order and Hayes complied. Again, the numbers indicated that this had no effect on the leak. Odyssey was doomed. They had done what they could, but there was no way to save the ship. The remaining oxygen tank, the leaking one, had just over 200 PSI left. It wouldn't work at all once it got around 100 PSI, so they needed to figure out what to do as they couldn't stop the leak. The new order came in. Odyssey was to be abandoned. The three astronauts would need to move into Aquarius, the lunar module, and start it up. It was now their lifeboat. Aaron... Uh, I just mentioned that we're in the blackness of space. I just want to keep on reminding people where this uh, marooned episode is taking place. If you freaking couldn't figure that out, I don't know why I'm reminding people. <laughs> what, what am I, out of my mind? Of course we know we're in space, Jack. But I need to say here that had this issue that they're dealing with here, that is as a result of one of those tanks being dropped in the process of being put into the to the module, is my understanding. Someone dropped it, Aaron. Did you catch that? Like, that's how it's been damaged, but we'll get to the reasons why it's been damaged. Yeah, we'll get into it more later. But really, they're far away from home. They're out in yeah. space. So there's really no help other than Houston, the control center. They can talk to them and tell them, do this, do that, try this. And of course, they're ready to try anything. They want to make it home, but moving into the lunar module, just so people understand, the command module is what's meant to fly through space. The lunar module was only meant to fly from the orbit of the moon to the moon and then back. That's it. This isn't meant to fly through space. Not like this. This is what they're taking home now. And what I missed in my own research a few times, and I keep on coming back to it, I think it's important to, to bring up is that had this issue occurred on the way home after they'd already gone to the moon and used um, Aquarius, 
they'd be doomed as that lunar module is pretty much like one-time use, right? It would be used up. It's battery and all that. Is that correct, Darren? That's what it looks like. It looks like they would be doomed. In fact, there are a lot of situations here that had it happened at some other point, they really believed that they wouldn't have been able to get them home. Not alive anyway. Right. And I think it's interesting for the audience to know uh, before we continue as well is that Aaron's never seen the movie Apollo 13. You still haven't seen it, have you? I have seen it. It's just been years. Yes, it's been oh, years. Okay. I, I spent my entire time researching this and I didn't get a chance to watch it again. Um, oh. But no, I, I did see it, I believe, in the theaters when it came out. So it's been a long time. I thought you'd never seen it. So I was like, oh, man. I'm going to watch this tonight and throw a bunch. I, I can't throw a bunch of little. I have a couple of little quotes from the movie, so don't worry, everybody. I'll screw around with this a little bit at some point. I know you're expecting it for my dummy, dummy head. Go ahead, Aaron. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Each HelloFresh box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients, and everything arrives pre-portioned right to your doorstep for less hassle and less wasted food. All you have to do is open your weekly box of pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to get cooking. And with the meal planning out of the way, the best part might just be cooking the HelloFresh meals with a friend or family member. I enjoy cooking with my wife. Just recently, she made tortilla melts, and I made a stir-fry. The stir-fry kits from the store just can't compete. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MaroonedFree and use code MaroonedFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash MaroonedFree with code MaroonedFree. Houston had been their lifeline during this crisis. Kranz, Liebergott, and many others had done their best to aid the Apollo crew, but a shift change was underway. Keep in mind, there are four shifts. Kranz was replaced with Glenn Lunny, and Liebergott was replaced by Clint Burton. Imagine getting to work and stepping into this <laughs> situation. Apollo 13 appears to be doomed. The mission to the moon has become a rescue mission. Lives are on the line. In this case, the relieved didn't go home. When Liebergott <laughs> was replaced by Clint Burton, he just moved behind him. Everybody yep. did this. They weren't going to walk away. They were there for the remainder of the mission. In case you're wondering about the shifts, there were four. Leading each was a flight director. The shifts were designated colors, white, black, maroon, and gold. And the flight directors were Eugene Krantz, Glenn Lunny, Milton Windler, and Jerry Griffin. Krantz had the ultimate say when it came to making decisions. Swigert was tasked with powering down Odyssey, while Lovell and Hayes powered up the lunar module Aquarius. But in order for Aquarius to be flown, it would need to have the numbers for the orientation and coordinates of the guidance platform from Odyssey. Swigert would need to get those to Lovell and Hayes before Odyssey was powered down or lost its power. Aquarius and Odyssey were pointed in opposite directions, hence the need to get Aquarius properly aligned. Lovell wrote the numbers down and did the calculations. Imagine the pressure of that situation. <laughs> You're trying yeah. to take down numbers and do calculations. Some of it is simple math, but if you get this wrong, imagine yeah. imagine that. So, well, sorry, Aaron. Um, I want to say about Commander Level just real quick while I have the opportunity is that I we all can still uh, hear Commander Level speak to this day. He's ninety five years old, still kicking and completely aware. Like he is, he, he is sharp, 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 and seems to be in great physical condition too. He's one of these guys who might be the first. He, he looks to me he could be like the oldest man in the world at one day. 
So if you get the chance, just search Commander Level Apollo 13. You can hear this. He's an old man now. Still speak very clearly about all these events. It's fascinating. So, of course, the pressure of the situation is getting to level a little bit. He's the commander. He's holding it together. But he's contacting Houston saying, can you double check my math? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Odyssey powered down and Aquarius powered up. It was ready. They were about 20 hours away from lunar orbit. Remember, at this point, they're still headed towards the moon. That's right. So back on Earth, Gene Krantz needed everyone to be at their best. He walked to the front of Mission Control and spoke to the entire team, which was now watching him. I said this crew is coming home. You have to believe it. Your people have to believe it. And we must make it happen. This inspired the team, who, like the astronauts in space, were dealing with a lot. Kranz did not want doubt, and he did not want anyone to lose their nerve. In the movie, as promised, I got a quote here for you, Aaron. Ed Harris played Kranz. He said around this point, quote, Let's work the problem, people. Let's not make things worse by guessing. Another quote from the film, Aquarius just became a lifeboat. <laughs> and I love those two quotes. Oh, yeah. That lifeboat quote, man, is uh, it gives you chills because it's the truth. As the ship hurdles towards the moon and oxygen and supplies were no longer a pressing concern, there needed to be a plan to get the astronauts home. Very quickly, Houston understood that the best plan would be to go around the moon. That's why they're still headed towards the moon, and then slingshot towards Earth. This would save precious fuel, but would add to the time it took to return. They also needed to come up with calculations so that the plan could be executed properly. Aquarius was still attached to Odyssey. There was no free return pass since they were supposed to do a landing in Fra Mauro. When would they fire the thrusters? And for how long? In all of the simulations to prepare for the Apollo mission, Maneuvering Aquarius with Odyssey on top of it wasn't one of them. Lovell did his best to maneuver the craft as he sought a clear view of the stars. Without that view, they couldn't get a fine alignment which was necessary for the trip home. They could end up missing Earth entirely and by tens of thousands of miles. Lovell guided the craft around to get clear of the escaping oxygen from Odyssey while hearing Houston caution him again about gimbal lock. The tired commander's patience was beginning to fade. You can imagine as he's trying to make this whole thing work and Houston keeps saying, you're going to gimbal lock. Watch it. Watch the lock. Yeah. And he's just like, damn it. (laughs) I know. I'm aware. (laughs) Back on Earth, NASA's best had gathered in Houston to decide on the plan. Remember, there were people that were former this and former that or were off shift or whatever. No, everybody came in. Everybody. Mm -hmm. The amount of factors and the sheer numbers involved are staggering, but they did come up with a plan and Lausma contacted Lovell to give him the numbers they would need to execute the plan. Throttle settings, engine angles, and burn times, as well as attitude coordinates would put the ships on a free return back to Earth. Remember, they're having to use the lunar orbit to slingshot around because If they just say, well, let's turn around, they're using up a bunch of fuel. They're going to need fuel at different times for different reasons, and they can't just use it all to turn around. Yeah, the quote that I heard was like, it's really difficult to do a U-turn in space. And like you said, it would just chew up a lot lot of their fuel to do that U-turn. So again, they're going to use the moon. If they ever actually went to the moon, as a lot of people, some people may be listening are like, yeah, these guys, I mean, what a waste of time. Can you imagine what the undertaking would be? I mean, it's easier just to go to the moon than it is to make up 
going to the moon at this point. That's one of opinion. the best quotes you can ever hear about the whole situation. <laughs> or the one you and I talked about was if they were going to fake it, wouldn't they have cooler looking spacecraft? <laughs> yeah. It's like junk you'd find on someone's property, like a hoarder. <laughs> the one, the one, the Apollo 11, what we were talking about, it looks like what, um, there was a woman who went over Niagara Falls in like a sack. That's what it kind of looks like, right? <laughs> and we're like, man, what if they just, if, they, if it was fake, wouldn't they make a real shiny, like believable looking module? Shouldn't it have like wings and like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the stripes and the stars on the wings and all this? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How crappy it looks uh, makes it so much more believable. So Aquarius, which is the lunar module, it's programmed, uh, which meant that the computer on board would handle the job of getting them on their free return path. Commander Lovell would just control the strength of the burn. A 30-second countdown was initiated, and once it hit zero, the engine fired for just over 34 seconds. After the burn, they would need to power down certain systems to save power. At around 61 and a half hours into the trip, the burn initiated. Houston verified that all looked good. But any temporary satisfaction from this maneuver was soon forgotten. Astronauts Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert were in Aquarius. The lunar module was not built to carry three astronauts for nearly four days, and yet, that's what the plan was. The numbers indicated that oxygen wasn't going to be a problem, but carbon dioxide and electrical power would be. Aquarius had some lithium hydroxide cartridges. They were used to trap and remove carbon dioxide from the air. Crunching the numbers, it appeared as if these five cartridges would last a total of 36 hours. That's far short of the 48 hours needed. As for power, Aquarius would use 55 amps, but that wasn't feasible. They would have to find a way to lower the amps to 24 if they were going to keep Aquarius powered. Meanwhile, Houston needed to now plan for the next course adjustment. They needed to find a way to shorten the time of the return trip to Earth while also aiming for a crash landing in the Pacific Ocean. After all, they would want to retrieve the astronauts as fast as possible, and the United States had more ships there. Flight Director Gene Krantz had set up a new team, Tiger Team, to handle the remaining steps of the rescue mission to ensure success. This team had three different groups in it. A flight controller was assigned as the leader for each of these groups. The first group, wrote the instructions for each procedure, the second made checklists from the instructions for the crew, and the third made certain that the proposed steps would not adversely affect the power level of either Aquarius or Odyssey. Odyssey mattered because part of the plan involved using the command module for the crash landing. After all, once the crew got back to Earth, they would need to survive the trip through the atmosphere, which Aquarius, the lunar lander, was not designed to do. The crew was getting run down. They hadn't been able to rest, really, given that they were fighting to survive. When sleep was attempted, two would rest and one would be on watch. It was also very cold in Aquarius since it wasn't isolated from Odyssey. The temperature got down to at least 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Many food items were frozen. Additionally, Mission Control asked the astronauts to bag their urine. Venting it could cause them problems. The astronauts then had to figure out where to put the bags as they piled up. 73 hours and 31 minutes into the mission, the time came to discuss an alignment. Houston said to be ready at 74 hours 29 minutes, but Commander Lovell wanted to do it immediately. After all, the alignment would be calculated using the largest, easiest-to-spot star, the Sun. 
The other stars in the sky weren't easy to see since there was so much glittering debris coming from their ship. At 73 hours, 32 minutes, Commander Lovell entered the data given to him from Houston and then pushed a button to proceed. The lander's jets fired and it turned, rolled, and yawed until the sun came into view. And at 73 hours, 47 minutes, the sun check was complete. With this new data, the crew could be given the instructions for what was called the PC plus two burn. It basically meant that this burn would be initiated two hours after their closest approach to the moon. The plan was to fire the engine for five seconds at minimum thrust, then 21 seconds at 40% thrust, and four minutes at maximum thrust. Lovell would control the thrust power. This would shorten the trip home, save power, and preserve more consumables, especially water. With the plan in place, Apollo 13 would first need to go around the dark side of the moon. Once there, they couldn't communicate with mission control in Houston, but that was expected. What Swigert and Hayes weren't prepared for was the sight of the moon. They were about 139 miles above, and for the 25 minutes or so that they passed beyond the moon, only in the last five minutes could they see anything. It was then that they took pictures and marveled at the hills and craters as they passed by. Once around, communications were reestablished. Commander Lovell spoke with Houston as his two other crew members continued to look out towards the moon as their craft sped away from it. Commander Lovell reminded them that while the moon was impressive, they had more work to do if they were going to get home. Interestingly enough, the third stage of their rocket impacted the moon. Houston got the reading from the seismometer left by Apollo 12. Ten minutes later, the PC plus two burn would be initiated. Everything had been planned and calculated, but until it happened, there was no guarantee it would be successful. Fred Hayes, like the ECOMs in Houston, had taken stock of their consumables. Water was needed for the crew for hydration, but also for cooling equipment. They planned to conserve as much as they could. Beyond consumables, the astronauts had to deal with being in space and the negative effects it can have on a person. Hayes was experiencing space adaptation syndrome and suffered with headaches and even vomiting during his time on this mission. The PC plus two burn went as planned at 8.40 p.m. CDT on April 14th. According to calculations, the Odyssey would splash down 600 miles southeast of American Samoa at 142 hours, 54 minutes into the flight. April 17th, a Friday, would hopefully be the day the crew was plucked from the Pacific Ocean after splashdown. The crew was asked to perform a thermal roll so as to keep one side from cooking in the heat and the other from freezing in the cold. This is important because if they're not ever rolling, they will burn up on one side and then the other side will freeze and this can damage the craft they're in. If you've ever seen space films and you see where the craft they're in is constantly rolling, it's because of this. Other chores were sent up as well. After two hours, they could begin sleeping in turns. Hayes would go first and sleep for three hours. By the time he came back, Lovell was awakened by Jack Lausman's voice. All three crew members were exhausted. Lovell was ordered to sleep for three hours until 85 hours and 25 minutes into the flight. Again, they can't just sleep somewhere. It's not like they have these uh, sleep number beds or something out there. <laughs> they have these hard benches and really they're just meant to hold them in place so they don't float away. So, And then the freezing cold they're experiencing, 38, 36 degrees, whatever it is, it's a tough flight. Actually, and too, Aaron, uh, it's starting to get wet in there too, right? There's a condensation happening and the, the controls are getting wet. They're cold. They're, they're starting to become wet. 
Yes, and that just gets worse as the flight goes on. More than 90 hours into the flight, and with some sleep attempted, the rising carbon dioxide levels needed to be tackled. Remember, I mean, high carbon dioxide levels will result in danger for the crew. While there were only five CO2 scrubbing canisters in Aquarius, Odyssey had plenty. The issue was that Aquarius used round canisters and Odyssey used larger square canisters. Ed Smiley, an engineer who developed and tested life support systems for NASA, began working on the carbon dioxide issue as soon as he heard Aquarius was to be their lifeboat. He had taken stock of what items were available to the Apollo 13 crew and got to work with his team to figure out a solution. And over the course of two days, they did. The items needed to create a solution were a plastic bag, a sock, a flight manual cover so as to prevent the bag from collapsing, cloth tape, some hose, and lots of duct tape. That's a savior in a lot of homes, I think, the duct tape. This was tested before having the Apollo crew try it. It worked in Houston, and it worked in Aquarius. Not only was CO2 not going to be a problem, but Jack received word that the government had granted him an extension on his taxes. (laughs) Nice. Thank goodness. (laughs) At 94 hours into the flight, Joe Kerwin asked Swigert to power up both buses in Odyssey to get readouts and check to be sure that no power was draining its batteries. It will also confirm that the buses can be powered on later. At this point, the crew was more than 178,000 miles from Earth. Velocity was 3,982 feet per second. Jack Swigert was tasked with getting power to the batteries in Odyssey at just after 101 hours into the flight. This procedure took about an hour as he listened to Vance Brand give him instructions. Keep in mind, the communications between mission control and the ship works, but it isn't always ideal. Yeah, that's the funny thing is, so you're being told, do this, do that, and you're going to be doing this. And at times it'll break up and you won't exactly hear everything that was said to you. So they'll have to repeat this communication. Yeah, you don't want to, you can't miss any of it. This isn't just like a casual conversation they're having. Every word is necessary to hear. So at 105 hours, a manual burn was initiated due to Houston reading the crew as being on course, but shallow. They labeled it as a mid-course correction to improve entry corridor angle. Yeah, this was important because they didn't really see this coming. And there's a reason why they're return is kind of shallow. They had a leak, a little leak that was happening, and it was spraying out just enough to kind of push them into that shallow approach. But all they can do is look at the numbers and say, we need to adjust our return, our course, and that's what they do. 126 hours into flight, Aquarius had no heat shield. So obviously the crew would have to be in the Odyssey during re-entry. The batteries in Odyssey needed to be charged. Thankfully, after Apollo 10, there had been testing done and using Aquarius to charge the Odyssey's batteries was feasible. They didn't have a lot of power to play with, but if the crew only used what was necessary, the Odyssey would have enough juice to get them home. But in order for this to work, Swigert would have to handle the command module startup sequence without instrumentation. To save power, the instrumentation panel would be the last thing switched on. Once the system was on, it must stay on. They couldn't risk anything going wrong, and there was a lot of trust in Swigert. Walking Swigert through the startup procedure was Ken Mattingly, who he had replaced shortly before launch. Mattingly conveyed the instructions to Swigert, who wrote them down, after which Swigert is told he should get some rest. 
And I can only imagine the guy that was supposed to be on this mission is now trying to help bring these guys home. I wonder if he was thinking, damn, I'm glad I got rubella. (laughs) Those German measles sure came in handy. (laughs) At almost 130 hours into the flight, Apollo 13 was 74,900 nautical miles from Earth and traveling at 6,999 feet per second. The ship's speed is increasing due to the pull of Earth's gravity. The crew have less than half a day before they are scheduled for re-entry. By now, the crew is exhausted. Fred Hayes is pretty sick. He has a urinary tract infection and is experiencing chills. At 137 hours of flight, one final course correction burn was made to be sure of hitting their target in the Pacific. Apollo 13 is 38,303 nautical miles away from Earth with a velocity of 10,045 feet per second. Next, they jettisoned the service module at 138 hours and 2 minutes time. As it moved away, they took pictures of it. The damage was extensive. They would later discover what had caused the explosion. Yeah, and when they actually jettisoned the service module, that's when they really discovered, and and it took some time to even find it because they're looking out through the little windows and things and they're not seeing it right away. But once they do find it, they're seeing this extensive damage on it. And then they realize, hmm, something really must have happened internally because there's always this idea that maybe they had been struck by something in space. But no, it was pretty obvious that something had happened internally. And they're lucky to be alive. They realize, I mean, they know that they're, well, I guess they have an idea that they're lucky to be alive, but how lucky they are, they don't realize until they get a good look at the damage to, to, um, to Odyssey. To jettison Aquarius. The crew installed the hatch and moved to Odyssey and vented the lunar module until the docking tunnel was reading 3 PSI. This keeps it sealed. They then fired the pyros to get separation. The crew of Apollo 13 thanked everyone at Mission Control after they jettisoned Aquarius at 141 hours, 31 minutes, which was about one hour before Odyssey would reach Earth. Farewell, Aquarius. We thank you, Lovell said. Their lives literally depend on them. Yes. You know? And after all they'd been through, they need to separate from Aquarius, but yeah, they, they have some feelings for Aquarius now and they're having to jettison it like it's just some scrap, but no, they, they, they kind of have a soft spot for Aquarius now. Well, they're kind of like sailors, right? And that's their ship. Yeah. And that's, that's how they feel about it. It was a rough ride in the lunar module, but it served them well, <laughs> yeah. you know? They were about 11,000 nautical miles from Earth and moving at about 17,000 feet per second. Once the Odyssey hit the atmosphere, all communications would go silent. Immense heat would hit the craft, and it remained to be seen if the ship could take it. If it had experienced any damage from the explosion days earlier, it could burn up on re-entry. Beyond that, there was concern for the parachutes. Charges would go off to deploy the chutes, but what if they didn't work? Yeah, and also at play here was they needed to roll the craft so that one side wouldn't heat up too much, one side wouldn't freeze too much. And that was another concern. What if they hadn't rolled in time and the ship was damaged? Right. I wonder if they called that the rotisserie maneuver. (laughs) It's kind (laughs) of like you're making sure it's all not too hot. The crew spoke before communications went silent. I know all of us here want to thank all of you guys down there for the very fine job you did, Jack Swigert said. That's a firm, added Jim Lovell. Waiting for word on the crew of Apollo 13, The entire team in Houston was feeling the pressure of the situation. So many people at NASA and other agencies worked to bring the crew home. They couldn't stand the thought that they had brought them so close to home only to have them perish. 
the USS Iwo Jima, a helicopter carrier, was the designated rescue ship. A plane was in the air, and it picked up the signal from Odyssey. It seemed like everyone was waiting with bated breath until the parachute spreaded from the command module and slowed it down for splashdown. April 17th, just as planned, the crew had arrived back to Earth. The crew were pulled from the command module and brought aboard the Iwo Jima. Back in Mission Control in Houston, celebrations broke out, cigars were lit, there was a brief topside celebration on the ship before the exhausted but joyous crew was taken to sick bay for evaluation. President Richard Nixon wasted no time in awarding the Presidential Medal of Freedom to the Apollo 13 Mission Operations Team. The next day, President Nixon, Marilyn Lovell, her kids, Mary Hayes and her kids, as well as Jack Swigert's parents arrived in Honolulu, Hawaii at Hickam Air Force Base to meet with the Apollo 13 crew of Jack Swigert, Fred Hayes, and Jim Lovell. Each of them were presented with the Presidential Medal of Freedom as well. It turned out that Fred Hayes had a kidney infection. He was basically sick for most of the flight and after. Another thing that happened here was it seemed like President Richard Nixon hadn't really been a fan of the Apollo program because it had been started by his rival, oh, yeah. John F. Kennedy. But even Richard Nixon was won over with the heroism and the amazing accomplishments of the astronauts and the teams that supported them, especially with this Apollo 13 mission. He wasted no time in contacting Marilyn Lovell and saying, you want to go to Hawaii with me? Let's go get your husband. <laughs> so this was a fine moment for the president who we all know had quite a controversial career. Yeah, he did. And uh, C Commander Lovell, uh, when he met Nixon, he apologized for you know the way that things went down. He said, and Nixon was like, no need to apologize to me. You did something that no one had ever done before. So that's kind of part of it too. He's like, well, this had been done underneath the Kennedy program, but wait a minute, this Apollo 13 thing is completely uh, brand new. I mean, what they just did had never been done before. So I can get on board with that. Yeah. And he also said something amazing, which was, he said, this was not a failure. This was a success yes. because so much, so many people in the media wanted to say, oh, it didn't work. They didn't make it to the moon this time. And yet he was saying, no, this was a success. They managed to come back home when it looked like all hope was lost. Well, it probably gave a big boost to the program, you know, too, to the NASA program. I wonder if there's any conspiracy theorists that say that they uh, made all this up just to boost the program again. There probably is. There's conspiracies for everything. So later, an investigation revealed that the explosion that jeopardized the Apollo 13 crew and scrapped their opportunity to land on the moon was a result of a change made to the spacecraft design in 1965 when the heaters of the oxygen tanks were changed from 28 volts to 65 volts. Unfortunately, the switches in the tank had not been changed to handle the higher voltage, resulting in them sustaining damage during a ground test just two weeks before the launch. And as I mentioned before, Aaron uh, Lovell was the one I heard say, yeah, they just, they dropped them. They dr somebody dropped one. There was a shelf that a lot of the equipment sat on and they could easily add it or, or take it off with a crane and a winch. And yet when they were trying to take it off of a prior craft, they didn't take all the bolts out. So they go to move it off the craft and one of the bolts is hanging on and it ended up falling away from the winch and the, and the crane and dropping not that much, but it was just right. enough to kind of mess things up. We could spend probably 10, 15 minutes explaining all the things that actually went wrong. Yes. Well, you, you could. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we would have to spend a while explaining all the things that happened 
But just rest assured, this was the main problem was between yes. the slight drop and then, of course, these the switches not being meant to handle this higher voltage. That's really what it comes down to. Right. And I'll say quickly, my understanding, like they did do tests on everything before it went out and everything seemed fine, but there were certain things that they didn't have involved in the tests, like uh, it filling. I see. I'm, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try, Aaron. You're probably getting to the tanks and emptying yes. the tanks and things like that. Yes. 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 And there's like uh, a switch that, that was malfunctioning because of the drop. And he was commander level. Like I said, he's 95 years old now is around that age. And uh, he's still pretty, upset about that <laughs> when you hear him talk about it uh, understandably so so it's amazing that the crew survived when nixon announced that the apollo 13 was not a failure that it was a success it makes sense the incredible amount of work and effort by countless people that we can just touch on in a podcast is staggering they all came together and saved the crew and also came up with new approaches to the apollo missions to make them even safer and that will do it for this mission, Aaron. I don't know whose idea it was to go to space, yours or mine. It probably was mine, but you ended up doing all the work, which is uh, par for the course. I believe it was my idea. Was it yours? Okay. I'm an incredible fan of NASA and the work they do in space, the discoveries they make. And just for people who are into the Apollo missions now, if, if you're new to this, there's a movie titled Apollo 18. There never was an Apollo 18. It has nothing to do with conspiracies. That's just for fun. <laughs> I don't even know if I'd recommend it, but, you know, have a gander if you want. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody's seen Apollo 13. It's one of my favorite movies. It was fun to go just really deep and understand some of the stuff they weren't able to include in the movie or try to understand it. And uh, I did enjoy it. But in the end, I don't think I'll be headed back to space anytime soon with Maroon, Darren. That's probably the one. There's got to be other stories. Did you come across any in your research looking for a space marooned episode? Well, actually, I don't have any to talk about at the moment, but I can tell you that the size of the research involved in this one was pretty intense. It was yeah. a massive amount of reading that I did. Um, yeah. I can tell you, if you want to know more, read Jim Lovell's book because it's amazing. Just type in Jim Lovell, L-O-V-E-L-L -L, on Amazon's search, uh, Amazon's website, and you will find it. Uh, or go to your local bookstore and find it. There are other resources, obviously. You can watch the film. I mean, it's not 100%, but it is a very entertaining film and touches on a lot of the stuff that happened. Um, and of course, any film with Ed Harris, you know, is usually a yeah. pretty good movie. Yeah, for real. He was great in that role of, as Krantz. Other resources you can find are on NASA's website. Just type in uh, NASA Apollo 13 and you'll see nasa.gov. And yeah, there's a lot to read there. Yeah, there are full scenes, uh, video scenes that you would recognize from the movie. and You get to see the the real life, what happened. And they're they're quite similar. I mean, these guys were very intense, smoking cigarettes, trying to figure this damn thing out. And they did. An amazing story. You can go on YouTube and even see that broadcast that they did. Mm -hmm. All 30 some minutes of it. Well, it's uh, been pretty cramped quarters throughout this episode, Aaron. I think I'll float back to Lunar. You all right here alone in command? Uh, yeah, it's a bit cold, but yeah, I'll make do. Right. And there are these bags everywhere. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> That's me. That's me. You need to stop drinking so much water, man. I think you're using it for <laughs> no. tea, aren't you? 
<laughs> no, I snuck a two four onto the onto the flight of of beer, but every time I open them, they explode in my face. So yeah, that's just. <laughs> Anyways, good night, Aaron. Good night, Jack. Oh, and before we take off, Aaron, I just want to remind the audience to please subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Uh, tell your who else can they tell, Aaron? pet an animal where am i going with your this? neighbor's pets i don't care who it is just tell everybody you need to tell everybody <laughs> absolutely and thank you so much for all the support so far uh we are really happy with the way that maroon is going and, and the response from it we really appreciate it uh but again please thank you share and if you have any stories you would like for us to talk about please send us any ideas you have we'll probably use them Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.